installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton, and today I'm joined by Dr. Emra Safagurkan, a recent PhD from Georgetown University's Department of History. Emra, congratulations and welcome back. Thank you, Chris. It's good to be back. So today's topic of discussion is factions or factionalism in Ottoman politics. And I think this is a fascinating topic for our listeners. We don't normally talk too much about factions in Ottoman politics. Emma, could you explain the relevance of studying factions? Well, I want to look at when we compare Ottoman historiography on historiography on Ottoman political history with those on European political history. We see this uh, when we talk about the Ottoman. We we'll see this difference when we when we the Ottomanists talk about the Ottoman Empire. We generally talk about a monolithic state. And um, the result is a historiographical tradition that allows no room for internal divisions within a government and then fails to reflect the process of decision-making in terms of factional politics and negotiation between different actors that fight for power, not only in the, prov- not only in the, not only in the capital, but in the provinces as well. So it you know, impedes us from understanding these intricacies of Ottoman political history. And this has, you know, received some criticism on behalf of, uh, uh, you know, a couple of uh, recently written PhD dissertations, including mine. And uh, this should be readdressed, uh, basically. And so the argument here is that by ignoring factions and the role of factionalism in decision-making, the state itself becomes a rational, autonomous actor with its own sort of this is this is the problem because when you when you just ignore the af, the, the the concept the aspect of factions uh, in Ottoman political you know history then the result is a monolithic state that on and 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 a decision making process where decisions have been undertaken with the best state interest in mind while in fact we know that this was not the ca- case and because also we have no reason to believe that this should be the case because when you look at all the other empires when you look at the modern decision making process you always see this element of corporate interest this power groups pressure groups these lobbies these are all over the place but for a couple of reasons the in the ottoman historiography this kind of an approach has never been developed and one of these reasons were the nature of ottoman sources because what we have from the classical uh, you know ottoman period you know, pre-19th century Ottoman period, what we have are the government-produced documentation, which are succinct and brief compared to their European counterparts, and which reflect no decision-making process, no argument. Okay, let me give an example. For example, if you go to the Venetian archives and, mm-hmm. you know, look at the Venetian documentation, they, at least there is a voting process, so you know who'd vote for what, at least not within the Senate itself, but within the Council of Ten, for instance. So you know how, you know, to what extent, at least, to what extent these have been uh, the, opposed by by a certain clique within the government, and in the public sphere, there is this you know uh, myriad of documentation, like you know pamphlets or you know relaciones that have been published, uh, all these you know writings of sen- which senators secretly you know uh, wrote wrote down during senate meetings, and then you know you know and then published it for the wider audience. So we get to understand these factional differences and on which a good amount of studies have been made. You know, monographs have been written, you know, for instance, in the you know, beginning of the 17th century, the Venetian old and the Venetian new factions. Or in the case of the Hafsburgs, again, we know that they have all these discussions in the consejos and we have these all these consultas, these little written reports to the, to the, to the, to the, to the king. And in all these documentation, you get to see 
the differences and how you know who said what, who opposed whom. So, you, but in the Ottoman documentation, in the Ottoman archival documentation, documentation, you don't get these details. In the chronicles as well, the Ottoman chronicles are you know fail in being precise and detailed about these issues and. You know, they give some information, but it's not enough to come up with, uh, with, 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 it's not enough to be able to follow a faction or, you know, to give a detailed study yeah. of who is aligned with whom. Because mind you, these are also not, you know, strictly, you know, somebody can belong to a number of factions or switch from one place to another, somebody can be neutral. So it's not easy to track those down. And the third reason could be, this was the idea of, you know, in, the, in Turkey, like there's this one state, you know, it's monolithic, it's sacred, so it didn't create too much, you know, enthusiasm to dig for internal divisions within a government because, especially in the 20th century, the Turkish state was not as, you know, at this, until 1950s, 60s, you know, there weren't too much of internal, you know, the state was also considered one big, you know, block. That's, a, that's an interesting connection, actually. And even if we look at the source material, the typical source material for early modern Ottomanists, we can see how Mihime, um, how Ferman, these aren't very good sources for seeing decision-making process because they reflect either uh, an event inscribed in the case of Mihime or in the case of a Ferman, it's an order. So the decision has already been made and it's not recorded there. However, we do know that factions existed. I, I mean, from my own experience for the 19th century, during the reforms, uh, the memoirs and the writings of, of people from the period reflect the factions within the government. Ahmed Jevdet talks about different camps and certain decision-making processes that ended up critical, for example, in Tezakir. But these don't necessarily make their way into the archival record. So how do we understand factions? I guess your research focuses on the 16th century. So how do we understand factions, and, and what are the main factions we're dealing with in the Ottoman state? Well, I, I mean, it's not only me who deals with these, uh, you know, factions. There are a number of other historians like Kazale or, you know, Berekci, um, and there are other people who do the um, 18th century as well. You know, it's, it's, it's an ongoing process of investigation. But um, most of the time, we the, 16th, we, we the 16th century people, like, you know, Berekci, Kazale, and I, had to make the most of the Ottoman sources, excellent in Topkapı as well as the Başbakanlık uh, Osmanlı Arşivi. But again, in in the end, had to rely on on, on foreign documentation because mind you, mind you, in 16th century Constantinople was a center of information, right? So all over the fl- place there is enemy spies, there are resident ambassadors starting with Venetian in the 16th century, later, you know, the French, the Austrians, and you know, British, English. All these people sent regular reports. Right. In the case of the Venetians, they're dispatchy, right? For so, so for one year, you have one thousand pages of pages long of ambassadorial reports that talk about all these rumors and stuff. And one big advantage was that these ambassadors were part of this factional game because they, by giving presents, by establishing a good relation with Ottoman grandees, they have been able to penetrate through. Uh, the Ottoman decision-making system, which included a lot of renegades. For instance, we know that in the, you know at the close of the 16th century, there was a, almost a you know a Venetian party in the Ottoman Empire. A lot of renegades. Probably the, one of the most important guy, most important official of the time. You know the the the, the, the chief eunuch was a, was Gazan Ferad, and he's a, 
he's a really important Ottoman who ruled the Ottoman Empire from behind the curtains for 30 years. He was a Venetian, right? His brother, his sister, you know, comes from Venice to visit him and she becomes a Muslim and she marries. So these are all extra, you know, state relations mm -hmm. that actually help these ambassadors to, you know, uh, or like in the case of the Hafsur, for instance, there's this Spanish woman who, whose one, one daughter was married to the Sultan, another daughter was married to an important officer. So, you know, why are these links? They could gather enough information so what's, about what's going on. Mm -hmm. And there is another thing that we should mention. Some of these, you know, uh, factions are ready to cooperate with these ambassadors because they provide certain business opportunities. Yep. Like if you're a Pasha and you have, you know, mind you, the Pashas, the Ottoman Pashas, for instance, gave one million, a huge amount of money as a loan to the French king. So they are all investing in international trade and finance. So they have, guys, they, have, they have men who, they have brokers, right, merchant brokers. So all these guys have been working in a, in a big environment of uh, cooperation in, in trade and finance. So Ottoman Grand Vizier like Sokolov would be happy to employ the, 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 the Venetian ambassador's physician as his own man, and this man can actually be a go-between between the Venetian bylaw and the Ottoman Sultan when the two powers were warring each other, exchanging gifts, exchanging information, and basically this helped the Europeans to get, a, to get a grasp of what's going on and to, to get a balance of power uh, within the Ottoman capital. And so as a result, we're able to glean more information about Ottoman factions from European sources as well, read in uh, combination with Ottoman sources. You know, it has to be read with a special approach. You have to compare and contrast them because an ambassador has to exaggerate his own deeds. That's why probably accentuate yeah. more than necessary these internal divisions or his role in these factional struggles. We have like, if we can compare five, six different ambassadorial reports and three talk about more or less the same thing, then there is, especially when they are also corroborated by, you know, hints that we found here and there in the Ottoman sources, you know, with a rigorous scientific approach, this could be, you know, this could be a very beneficial contribution. So Contrib give, us, give us an example of a faction or a factional contention in the Ottoman Empire during the 16th century? The biggest, the most important decision to be made should be, you know, related to the war and peace. I mean, because this state, the early, the early modern state is mostly a war machine, right? Because the state before the, before the modern times, you know, didn't build schools, didn't build mosques. Sure. So most of the, most of its occupation was, you know, making war and peace. So let's take two examples from you know, war and peace. One is the example of 1570 when the Ottomans actually decided to wage a war, you know, decided to start a war against the Venetians. There we have, we see two camps. One is the Sokolo camp, so the omnipotent, you know, Grand Vizier uh, who was opposed to the war because he has no West's interest and he and his men had, had, had no West's interest in fighting a war against the Venetians with whom the, he entertained you know, very good relations. And on the other side, we had his rival Pashas, you know, the Pashas who covets his, his position, as well as an influential, uh, one of the most influential Jewish figures of the, you know, 16th century Europe, Joseph Nassi. And this is, this is a really important guy, but I won't get into details. Um, so they want, they want a war because Nassi has extensive, you know, business relations, and he wants to, he wants to get, you know, he wants to invest in Cyprus, and uh, he also has, you know, he has also, has thing, you know, this thing going on with, with Venice, mm -hmm. and, you know, past grievances, so Nassi is a courtier, and with these Pashas, they convinced the Sultan to open a war. And so here we have a, 
clear example where a major faction of the Ottoman state is opposed to war and another faction is essentially pushing for war. Yes. So what's the outcome? Um, the outcome is the Ottomans start the war. They conquered Cyprus, but they, 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 they were defeated you know, severely in the Battle of Lepanto, at the Battle of Lepanto in 1750, uh, 1571. And in the end, you know, Cyprus remained in Ottoman hands, but you know, Nazi and Nazi lost power in the end because the Ottomans didn't actually, you know, uh, get what they expected from uh, from from the war. They lost the navy. They lost. A, you know, they suffered a humiliating defeat. But the 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 issue here was that everybody has its own agenda, and uh, war served. Uh, Nazis faction more than the so-called faction, and let me give another example how these things can actually be so um, tricky. You know, Sokolov's uh, main man, Salomon Ashkenazi, were also the, the Venetian ambassador's former physician. He was caught smuggling Venetian bylaws letters to be sent to the Venice on his own galley. So he was put in the prison. He was about to be killed, and the Ottoman Grand Vizier actually had him out of prison. So now we have this weird example where the Ottoman the Ottoman Grand Vizier, you know, had this guy who betrayed the state, by the way, because the bylaw wasn't supposed to be communicating with the outside world, let alone Venice. So he was caught smuggling, but twice, but, you know, Sokolo had him out of prison. Obviously, this shows how intricate these relations between different, you know, political actors were. Because it is not like, oh, there is this state interest, there is those people who are on the left side of it, you know, that mm -hmm. do good stuff for the state, and on the on the... Uh, on the on the on the you know uh, right side of it, who do bad stuff for the state? Another example, for instance, before the start of the Ottoman-Austrian War 15, in 1593, the Austrian ambassador learned that the Ottomans were start, were going to start the war from the Jewish kira, which is a lady in waiting, of the Ottoman Empress, and you know he was basically providing her with really good cloth, and the Ottoman Empress did, did you know found no harm, or uh, you know Ottoman Empresses. Uh, lady in waiting found no harm in just giving, giving away such an, betraying such an important state secret. Mm -hmm. And even the Ottoman Grand Vizier, for instance, you know, uh, when he confiscated the letters of the ambassador, he found incrim letters incriminating the Ottoman Empress himself. He, wisely, he, 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 he destroyed them, destroyed them without causing too much, uh, you know, trouble. But it is still there that, you know, personal and corporate interest doesn't correspond with an abstract notion of state interest. So on that note, I'd like to interrogate further the notion of the state. Are we, are we just going to totally do away with the abstract notion of the state? Or perhaps, to phrase this in another way, uh, does this factionalism simply represent uh, contending interests within the state apparatus? Or is there something to be said for uh, a dialectical or dialogic relationship between different factions that actually leads to coherent well-conceived state policy? It could be both. It depends on the particular circumstance. But what, I'm th what I say is not that the state consists of, you know, different components totally unrelated to each other, vying for power, trying to overcome the other in order to directly benefit themselves by getting the control of a big machine. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is that these, we have to understand any decision at a particular moment is the outcome of particular circumstances, factional circumstances, how decision makers perceived political options available to them and uh, the internal stability of the empire. But the point was all these different interest groups came up with different agendas. And I think this is a, this created rather a richness instead of, you know, this is a better s 
strategy making. It is just a, it's just poor historiography to fail on behalf of those who fail to understand that. It's not poor strategy. Every, any, any quality strategy is made with more than one option. If you want one option and everybody thinks about the same thing, it just creates, you know, less, less options for you. And, you know, the, there are also other benefits to it. For instance, every faction has its own information gathering system. There's intelligence networks. At times we see that they disinform their own government manipulate information in order to, you know, come on top. But this rivalry, uh, if it's not my, you know, capitalist state of mind, this rivalry should have, should, have, should have contributed in the long run to more information coming up, more analysis, you know, uh, more, inf- more, more effort de- invested in analyzing the information, and more options and more strategies have been created uh, by these rivaling factions. I think it's a, it's a richness on behalf of the state. And one other thing, that there is still, if not a state, you know, a constant, an abstract notion of a constant state interest, there is still some sort of a state tradition. There is a fine line between furthering one interest and bet- betrayal, right? So Sokolu might have done that, might have got, you know, got, his, got Solomon Ashkenazi, the guy, the physician who, you know, smuggled letters out of prison, but he used him in order to make sure the Ottomans signed an honorable t- peace treaty. So he may be against the war, but he didn't, you know, he, f- he, he walked a fine line between, you know, working a- against the Ottoman war efforts mm-hmm. And uh, just going on with the war, so he he managed to use this this occasion in order to you know uh, sign a preferable peace treaty and make the most of the situation by benefiting both the state and his own faction. You have to you know there are certain lines you cannot do everything you know based on your own corporate interests. So there's a there's a limit to that. There's a there's a scale. So how is a faction formed, or what constitutes a faction? Is it a conglomeration of, of shared interests? Is it, are, are, are they households with a kinship or patronage ties? Um, is this a, exclusively on the most elite levels? Uh, how are factions made? Are they a unified block? A faction is not, does not only consist of the, the Ottoman sultan, his, his immediate family, and the Ottoman you know, grandees, the pashas, or not only the you know courtiers. Obviously, these are important part of it, but there are other, you know, depending on the situation. But uh, there are other f- players that came uh, that came to the fore. Like it could be the military corps, like the janissaries, or the you know, uh, it it may be provincial authorities because this is a centralized empire. You know, all these appointments have been made to the center. All the provincial authorities have you know, connection in the center because they are bound to come back to the center and go back to another province. And there are all these, you know, b- you know, bankers that fund uh, these projects and that also work in tandem with the pashas because pashas, you know, this is an agricultural economy, pashas all get, you know, gather all these revenues, but they need somebody to run their money. So we have uh, these bankers, we have these, you know, important merchants, we have foreign ambassadors, as I told you, that mm-hmm. have been... Uh, the, who who had been really important p- players by who who managed to penetrate to the decision making by actually you know uh, allying with one of these factions or by buying us sometimes important decision um, important Ottoman decision makers and we have uh, we have corsairs on the one hand and uh, we all these people who have uh, who has something to lose or win from decision taken tried successfully or unsuccessfully tried to be a part of this decision-making process. So 
How did they form a faction? A faction is most of a, mostly a concept. We have to talk about, if, it, if we want to talk about the units, we have to talk about households and extended households, which you call couple. Let's say, okay, to give you an example, let's say the Ottoman Grand Admiral Uluchari, right? He had like 3,000 slaves who was rowing on his behalf, so he has to find work for them. Obviously, Uluchala will, you know, will always, you know, advocate for an active naval policy because he has all these people to feed. He has all these corsair captains, you know, who each had their own uh, kapu. So this is now a faction because now we see, even though Uluchala is not directly responsible, mm-hmm. but all these people would be richer in case Uluch, you know, makes uh, Uluch can convince the Sultan to pursue a more active policy in the Mediterranean because there is no more more offices, you know, more more payments from the, from the center and more 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 uh, plunder from these uh, missions. So this is a faction, but, you know. This is a sh- this is based on a shared interest, but sometimes these also have parental uh, relations. Like in the case of the, for example, the Sokolo faction, you see that the, most Sokolo's men are. His, you know, extended family. One is a governor general of Buda, the other is a governor general in Dalmatia. So when, when for example, Ottoman Venetian War came out, the, the Sokolo was as interested in the Dalmatian frontier because this is where it is, you know, his, his adher- adherence would make profit. And uh, you see that this these uh, factional balances also create differences in allocating ro- so resources and making the military decisions. Uh, to get an- another example, when the Ottomans decided to wage war against the Iran against the Safavid Iran in 1578 the Sokol was again against it and the other wizards who were who were hawkish you know uh, when they became the commander of the eastern front the first thing they do you know they did was to fill all these open 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 positions with their own adherents because if you're a serdar if you're a commander they give you the empty defter empty you know book and then you can make all the, you know, uh, appointments mm-hmm. in accordance with the need because somebody dies, somebody has to be appointed. Yep. You do these appointments. It means that you will be the dispenser of these, you know, royal favor. Mm-hmm. And it, it was something really important. And all these small figures were, you know, pressurizing their respective leaders of the faction, like the Corsairs asking for a more active policy. And Uluch was really frustrated when the Ottomans signed the truce with the Habsburgs. Or all these, you know, pashas who wanted to be richer, but for somebody like Sokolu who had all these good relations with, the, you know, with ambassadors who was already rich and who wanted to st- the, the continuance of the status quo, a war was a gamble. So he basically opposed it. So along the lines of this, we have to understand, you know, how people see, perceive political options available to them. And while this is recognizing divisions within the state apparatus and. and much the way of older narratives about warring households or tribal factionalism and these things. This is not what you're talking about. What you're talking about is loosely defined political blocks that come together around a combination of shared interests, patronage, and kinship ties, and, and they're often very pragmatic. Exactly. Okay, I understand a certain um, in certain levels. If you're you know if you're really linked, you know if you have kinship relations, obviously. These relations are harder to, you know, get rid of. Mm-hmm. So certain blocks will remain. But you know, in the larger sense of faction, you can move from one to another. For example, we know of the Sokolov's right-hand guy Ferudun Bey. After he was exiled, when the Sokolov faction was purged, after the Grand Vizier was assassinated in 1579, he managed to come back. 
and there were people whom we know, like especially these power, what I call a power broker, mm -hmm. these courtiers or bankers who, for example, they may be beneficial to both sides. Like ambassadors could be good with one faction and could be good with another, mm -hmm. even though, you know, it's possible to, it's not as, you know, monolithic as we think it, because it's a, it's a lot of large, con it's, it's a rather large concept. It's not like you uh, have to, you know, get a membership from one of these factions or something. Right. It is, it is much more fluid. And sometimes you get contradictory because this is a fluid thing. And also the reports are not 100% reliable because all he hearsay, it is really, you want have to really be careful when, you know, talking about this guy belong to this faction, because, you know, you have to find a a large number of examples in order to be able to make sure, you know, who belongs to which faction. Sure, and we don't want to disconglomerate the state and go through all the trouble of uh, removing this abstraction only to recreate, say, two factions that are equally monolithic. And we should generally be aware of these uh, fluidity and divisions. Uh, yes, exactly. If we are to de deconstruct the state, we have to deconstruct the, you know, if you, do, if you don't want to be simplistic about state, we don't want to be simplistic about the factions as well. Yeah, in some way it makes the job harder and uh, makes the narrative more complicated and nuanced. But on the whole, I think a, a new emerging way to view the Ottoman politics, it's first of all very much in line with our understanding of modern politics and European politics, but also may lend new insights into how decisions were really made in the past, moving away from the rational state model. Well, Emra, thanks for coming back on the podcast. It was great to have you back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my pleasure, actually. For those who are interested in finding out more on the topic, we're going to have a short bibliography on the website where you can also leave your comments and questions. Thank you for listening to the Ottoman History Podcast, and until next time, take care.